to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Next week, the Supreme Court is going to hear a case over whether the government can obtain personal email data from Microsoft's overseas servers. It's a privacy case with big implications. A little later in the show, we'll be joined by Microsoft's head of litigation, David Howard, to walk us through what to expect from oral arguments. And stick around to the end of the show when we'll discuss a legal beef over Dunkin' Donuts Angus steak sandwiches. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Wow. <laughs> we sound down to Low energy. Well, I'm a little tired. I was up uh, until about 2.30 in the morning watching oh. uh, Team USA, the, the women's hockey team, uh, win the gold medal against Canada. And tweeting about it. Yeah. I have to say, unfortunately, I was also watching that. That's nice. And the nice. reason I say unfortunately is that as you guys know, I'm not a huge sports Firmly fan. established right. in, uh, in the pro se canon. That, yeah. that carries on to the Olympics as well. The only thing I had watched <laughs> up until that point was some of the men's figure skating. Cause, okay, know. sure. Um, but my husband was really into watching that game, and he made me watch the end But of Amber, it. like, I mean, even, like, that was, especially at the end, a lot, the, the shootout is controversial in the hockey community in terms of deciding big games. But that was pretty exciting. Wouldn't you agree? It was so late at night. Okay, Alex. well, maybe I mean, it wasn't. Was wasn't it like two something in the morning? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, really was just just shy of two thirty. Yeah, but, um, I woke we... up this morning and checked Twitter as one does because yeah. you got to ruin your morning immediately. Sure. Yeah. And I saw tweets from Alex that like it was like four hours ago. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> four like, hours ago? It wasn't yeah. just me either. It was uh, Zach Zach Zagger, the senior sports reporter. Very on brand move for him was was <laughs> tweeting along with me. Good. Uh, Jocelyn Lamaru uh, uh, netted the uh, the winner in the shootout. Incredible move. It was like le- it was like legitimate sorcery. She was like weaving up the ice like a like like a serpent and just roofed it against. The- it, was, it was incredible. Yeah, there was wow. cheering in my household, and I immediately rolled over and went to sleep. So yeah, well, I was clearly was... not excited enough. There was for a lot of that, that actual. Going on. Huh. I, I yeah. fell into bed and uh, just woke up and started churning out some legal copy. Well, let's get right into some of the legal stories then. Yes. We've got a lot to talk about today. Yeah, I mean... The Olympic more, indictments of Russia. Yeah. More news from uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Yeah. Um, so a different la- kind of international competition. Sure. sure. I, I mean, the Russians aren't allowed in the... Uh, right. In the, right. Yeah. Uh, right. They have to have that designation right. where it's like... OAR. Yeah. 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 They're competing with Dave Matthews Band. Um, <laughs> but uh, we all saw last week that indictment against those 13 Russians. It was the, the troll farm that was mm-hmm. that big dis- disinformation campaign. Um, so... There's stuff on un- rolling out this week as well. Uh, right before we started recording, we saw that uh, new charges f- against Manafort and Rick Gates. Um, so uh, things are things are progressing rapidly as they tend to do. As with happens this with this story, yeah. But, yeah. but we have a special like. But our big really story, our, the big Law here. 360 story, was Definitely. that a um, former Skadden attorney on Tuesday pleaded guilty to lying to prosecutors uh, about sort of key aspects of this investigation. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about this guy. What what's his name? What did he do? The guy's name is Alex what's he been up to? Vanderswan. Okay. Um, he's 33. He's a Dutch citizen. Um he was an attorney at Skadden's London office doing what the firm's bio it's now been taken down, but what the firm's <laughs> yeah. bio called high value commercial litigations and arbitration. It's worth noting here um that he is the son-in-law of German Khan, who is the owner of Russia's largest financial and industrial investment group. Nice. So, so one of one of the oligarchs. Sure. Yeah. 
That would be a term for him. <laughs> so on Tuesday, Vanderswan admitted that he had lied to prosecutors about a 2016 conversation with uh, Rick Gates, who, as we mentioned, is one of uh, one of the two, along with Paul Manafort, one of the two former top Trump aides who were indicted for money laundering mm-hmm. and sort of waging this, uh, you know, unlicensed lobbying campaign on behalf of pro-Russian Ukrainian yes. interests. Mm-hmm. So um, this guy, Vanderswan, had this September 2016 conversation with Gates. He was asked by prosecutors about it. He lied about it. Uh, he lied about a few other things. He d- uh, deleted <laughs> he emails, some deleted lies. other records. Um, under the charges that he admitted to, he could have faced something like like five years in, in prison. But from the reporting that I've seen this week, it's going to be more like six months with with the agreement that he reached. So everything I've read about this, it seems like it's all centering around this report that he produced while he was at Skadden. Can you explain that and tell us more about it? So in 2012, uh, the then pro-Russian Ukrainian government, as represented by Paul Manafort as a lobbyist, Mm -hmm. hired Skadden to create this report, like a rule of law report, where they would look into these allegedly political prosecutions that mm-hmm. had happened of a former political opponent in the Ukraine. Skadden puts together this report that finds some wrongdoing, but ultimately, you know, says that the Ukrainian government was pr- was sufficiently above board. And Vanderswan was Vanderswan was one of the, was authors, one of the of authors of that, of that yeah. report okay. back in 2012. Fast forward to 2016. He and Gates have a conversation about the report. Okay. Why? We don't know. Gates instructs Vanderswan, and this is all according to the charging document, Right. instructs Vanderswan to reach out to another person who isn't identified. It's person A, this longtime associate of Paul Manafort. One of my very favorite things about this whole saga is unnamed people in the indictment. (laughs) I'm sure it'll all come to light eventually. So, And this was stressed to me by Andrew, who's working on this story around the clock, is that Skadden very clearly has said that they were not involved in any lobbying on behalf of of these Ukrainian interests. Mm -hmm. But in 2016, Gates reaches out to Vanderswan about this report, tells him to call their people. Vanderswan records the the phone calls. And then when prosecutors ask him about it, when Mueller's prosecutors ask him about it a year and a half later, he lies about it. He deletes the records. Something, he, he starts... You know, something some, went amiss. Something yeah. is up. So, mm-hmm. and that's where we're at. And that's what he admitted to the, uh, the 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 lying to prosecutors, which we've seen before in this investigation. Yeah, I mean, that's and there's a whole thing then about the the the, the, the sort of philosophical, you know, about like you know, whether lying to prosecutors is like the same as like actually committing different wrongdoing. We don't have to talk about that. But like, what is the big takeaway from where we are now? Well, like, I mean, what, as, as as we move ahead, there's a lot we don't know yet. That's but... that, and that's probably the biggest takeaway okay. here that we don't know. Like, we don't know why we don't like why did he lie about this? Yeah, like, right. It, you know, it was this report. Like, what? There are a ton of questions open. Who is the other person that he called and then deleted the record of? There are a lot of a lot more questions left unanswered by the the guilty plea and the charging document than than we actually get here. But can we at least take away from this that uh, Mueller isn't messing around and it's like a warning to people who might want to lie about things? Yeah, our one of our DC guys, Mike McInerney, wrote a great story talking about like. This is the latest thing to show that Mueller is not messing around with this investigation. He, there was the George Papadopoulos 
uh, indictment, there was uh, Michael Flynn, mm-hmm. both of whom were brought up on charges, not the direct charges, but the charges of lying to prosecutors. So if you're someone on the periphery of this whole situation and you know information, maybe it pushes you to come forward and work with them ahead of time. If you're asked about things, it's going to make you really, really double... Get your friggin' story straight out there. Correct. So <laughs> it it... it it raises interesting things as this goes forward of mm-hmm. maybe more people are going to come forward and work with them and help sort right. of unravel this mystery that we're all sort of sort of picking at from the edges. All right. Well, thanks for that, Bill. And we move now from people being sued for lying to people who get sued for telling the truth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In a broad concept. Uh, today, we're talking about corporate whistleblowers. And whether or not you work in the law, you're probably familiar with the idea of a whistleblower, someone uh, in the lower you know, ranks of a company who discovers something unsavory and comes forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not working in that area of the law, you might not think about the rules that apply um, to those whistleblowers and exactly how and when... Uh, and to whom they're supposed to approach with this information that they uncover. Um, But that's exactly what the Supreme Court was talking about this week. They handed down a unanimous opinion that really set um, some some very narrow boundaries uh, around the uh, the sort of legal protections that whistleblowers can get under the uh, Dodd-Frank law. So you caught my ear with Dodd-Frank. Yeah. Because we've talked about it a lot. It's been sort of a political football for the last decade. Yeah, basically. Um, but but what part of Dodd Frank? Like what what was the protection for whistleblowers under Dodd Frank that the court was looking at? To make this very simple, this law is like many hundred pages long. But the whole point of Dodd Frank was to strengthen the regulation of Wall Street and the and the financial industry sure. um, after the two thousand eight financial crisis. But the people who wrote the law basically implicitly acknowledged that the industry is so powerful and so big that they're going to need help. For, you know, sort to of crowdsource for, it, to people to regulate it from within, right? To to police itself, and that's where the whistleblowers' protections come in. Um, obviously, if you're a person who's uh, in the lower rungs of these companies, the big deterrent here to if you find something bad that your bosses are doing is well, they might fire you, or mm-hmm. they might demote sure. you, or something like or that, blacklist you in the industry, or anything like any that. number of things like that. And so that's a that's a pretty powerful deterrent. Um, the law the law was written with that in mind. It's written to shield people who who blow the whistle um, from retaliation from their employers. Um, but this week, the court made very clear that that protection from your from, from retaliation from your employer only exists in certain relatively narrow contexts. So that's let's dig into that. What mm-hmm. exactly are the protections they're keeping in place? Basically, what they said here is that if you are a person who has uncovered unsavory information that your company is doing, you can only be shielded from their retaliation, from firing or demotion or any number of things like Bill just said, Mm -hmm. um, if you bring that information to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is one of the key, uh, you know, watchdogs overseeing the implementation of the law, it does not apply if you raise it within the company. So ostensibly, if you just bring it to the company's attention, they... You don't meet the definition of a whistleblower. You don't meet the definition of a whistleblower, and and you could face termination without much legal recourse. As you say, Like this all turns on the the very definition of the whistleblower. And within the text of the law, um, uh, it is described as such. It's an employee who, and this is a quote, uh, who provides information relating to a violation of the securities laws. And then it turns on three crucial words, to the commission. So 
It's, sure. it's kind of right there. Like yep. you, you discover something, you have to bring it to the commission to be deemed a whistleblower and get these protections. So what did the employee in this case, like how did this get to the Supreme Court? Yeah, uh, that's not what happened here. It involved a former executive, a guy who was named Paul Summers, and he uncovered some uh, very complicated but very dicey financial uh, dealings by his company. It's his California uh, uh, data storage company called Digital Realty. Um, but basically, he raised the issue only within the company. He didn't go to the commission. He he went to his superiors and said, hey, I found this stuff. He was eventually fired. Um, he fought that in court. He actually won at the Ninth Circuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, you you know, the Dodd-Frank covers you here. The whole point is to protect whistleblowers. Um, but the, the justices yesterday said he's out of luck. And you can imagine this coming up. This could theoretically come up a lot where somebody thinks oh, I'm, I'm going to tell the people at my company that I uncovered this thing. Yeah, I, you know, I, when when you think about it that way, it's like, you know, you want to, you know, going to the going to the commission is like, you know, I mean, it, it could be perceived as like, oh, I'm like making more of a ruckus than I should. And maybe we can just yeah. handle this in house, stuff like that. Um, but the big picture here that that struck me was sort of twofold from this opinion from a pure like legal nerd standpoint, legal reading, it's a big victory for people who favor like very like straightforward text-based interpretations of law. And there's a big well, game of people that love that. And I was surprised to see it was by it was by RBG, right, who wrote the opinion. Like I say, it was a unanimous opinion and right. she wrote it and she is no one's idea of some Wall Street apologist or anything like that, but she wrote, this is a quote, the plain text reading of the statute undoubtedly shields fewer individuals from retaliation than the alternative. Summers did not provide information to the commission uh, before his termination, so he does not qualify as a whistleblower. Right. It's it's basically right there. It seems straightforward, but, you know, uh, with a Ninth Circuit ruling, it would have ostensibly expanded the whistleblower definition to people who, um, you know, scream it on the street or go to the, go, go within to the employers and right. stuff like that. Um, the other thing, specifically within the financial services realm, and we uh, wrote a really interesting story about this, um, is that while the the sort of corporate lobby is cheering this because they're setting mm-hmm. sort of narrower whistleblower protections. Um, a lot of whistleblower advocates say that that could be something of a, um, you know, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, kind of there situation. you go. Yeah, they're 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 saying you know you it 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 it, it could be it seems a blessing could be a curse because companies if they're saying okay you have to go to the commission, a bunch more people might companies, go. Companies employees might be going to the commission a lot more and that creates a lot of headaches for companies who have to deal with stuff like that. Um, so that's about where we're at. Um, pretty straightforward legal reading. Um, but you know, you got some clarity there on a on a pretty key portion of this like massive and influential law. One of the big privacy cases pending at the Supreme Court this term centers around whether the government can obtain personal email data from overseas servers. The Justice Department says it can when that data is controlled by U.S.-based companies. But Microsoft has countered that data that's physically located abroad should not be subject to warrants under the Stored Communications Act. Today we're joined by David Howard, Microsoft's head of litigation, to walk us through what Microsoft will be arguing to the High Court on February 27th. Welcome, David. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So for any listeners who are just hearing about this case, can you tell us why it's so important and why even everyday Americans should be paying attention to this one? Well, I think, you know, what's truly important about this case is whether, you know, information that's being stored digitally is going to be treated the same way um, uh, that information that was stored on paper used to be dealt with. 
So, you know, go back, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years or something like that to the days when most important information was stored on paper, right? Uh, if the U.S. government uh, wanted to get uh, information of uh, somebody who was outside the United States that was stored outside the United States, they'd have to actually respect the laws of the country in which that information was being stored. Um, and now, of course, we have a situation where people store their information online in the cloud. So what the U.S. government is saying is we don't have to apply the same laws anymore. Uh, we can simply serve a warrant on Microsoft in the United States, ignore the laws of the country in which the information is actually stored or the, or the uh, country, uh, the laws of the country in which the person is actually a citizen, uh, and get the information unilaterally. And we don't think that's right. Um, the one thing that struck out to me, David, when I was researching for this interview is that you guys really took a stand here to challenge the legality of the government's warrant. And I would imagine that other other companies have been asked to hand over data that's stored somewhere, not, you know, on a U.S. server. So I'm just curious as to what was it about the facts of this case that, like, compelled you guys to draw a line in the sand and, and fight it the way you have all the way up to the high court? Well, obviously, I can't speak for, you know, what, what other companies have been thinking about. Um, but, you know, for us, you know, it comes back down to the issue of the trust of our customers. Um, and, you know, this is an issue that is super important for our customers. Uh, you know, in, in Europe, for instance, and this case is about a warrant that was served for information that's stored in Ireland, privacy is a fundamental right. And, and you know, people outside the United States, um, believe that if the U.S. government wants to get their information for some sort of investigation, they have to respect the laws of the country, um, in, you know, in which that information is actually stored. So, you know, we listen to our cu customers and we act, you know, accordingly. And and let me just say also, this is an important issue for people, or should be an important issue for people in the United States as well. Because imagine if the shoe were on the other foot. Uh, imagine what would happen if. You know, you, um, Alex or, or Amber, um, you know, have information that's stored in the, you know, Microsoft Cloud or Google Cloud or, you know, any cloud in the United States and the government of Ireland or the government of China or Russia, um, didn't like something you had said on air and wanted to get a copy of those emails. Uh, I, I suspect you would hope that in order to do that, um, the governments of those countries would actually have to, um, pay attention to uh, the privacy laws of the United States instead of just going to uh, a Microsoft office or a Google office in, in, in you know, Moscow, for instance, um, and uh, asking for that information to be produced. So, you know, this is about sort of how governments will deal with these issues about digital rights and, and digital sovereignty. Um, as more information is stored online, that that counterfactual definitely occurred to me when I was when I was researching, especially when with regard to you know this specific DOJ and say like a Chinese government request for uh, for private data, given the the tenor they've struck. So that's that's a point well made, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're starting to get into what I want to talk about next with you, David, which is exactly what Microsoft is going to argue before the high court. Can you run us through sort of the big points that you want to make to the justices? Sure. Um, you know, basically, this this case is about, um, you know, whether or not the U.S. has to respect the laws of other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, you know, the the point that we're going to make um, is that you know there has been tremendous outcry um, in this particular case um, from governments of other countries, businesses outside the United States, 
I mean, I think we have uh, briefs that were filed. Oh, we're going to get there, of, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, on behalf of groups and individuals from like 37 countries um, involved in this case. And the law is really clear that if the United States government wants, wants to do something um, that's going to impact uh, other countries, if it wants to, wants to apply a law extraterritorially, it has to be super clear that that was Congress's intent when it passed the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this particular case, uh, what we know is that the law that, that the government is relying on to get this information, which is the Stored Communications Act, was passed in 1986. Yeah. Well, the World Wide Web wasn't even created in 1986. Crocodile Dundee was like the, 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 the <laughs> most popular movie in the theaters, and the A-Team was the most popular TV show on television. And now we've got um, uh, a fake Crocodile Dundee Super Bowl commercial. The world is on its head. I saw I, that. It, it, <laughs> I saw that. Data well, is everywhere and nowhere. I, yeah. <laughs> don't get me started on the Super Bowl because I will go on for a long time because I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. So oh, I'm sad that will Bill's get me not completely, here. <laughs> completely off topic. But um, you know the point. The, you know the point that I was I was you know basically trying to make is that um, you know we we have uh, you know this world now um, where uh, information is being stored digitally um, and. Um, you know, it was never intended when this law was passed in 1986, uh, or even conceived uh, of, um, that we would have cloud computing and emails and other personal and private information stored um, in data centers outside the United States. So our basic point is um, that there's a presumption against extraterritorial application of the law for a good reason, yep. which is it's important that there not be um, you know, international friction that's created by laws unless Congress actually intended that result. And there's no way Congress could have possibly even intended that result in this case. Uh, one of the things that we do in the media all the time, not just us at Law 360, but anybody, is that when arguments are made at the high court, we try and glean what the justices might be thinking based on the questions they ask, and that's such an imprecise game. But I'm curious just to know if you and your team and the other firms you're working with have tried to ascertain what kind of room you're walking into uh, in terms of who might need convincing or who might be more on your side, especially in a case like this, because privacy doesn't always fall so neatly along partisan lines. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And, you know, obviously, you know, we try to think about, um, you know, what what some of the justices have said about certain issues, um, whether in decisions or not in decisions. I yeah. mean, uh, Justice Breyer, for instance, wrote a book called The Court in the World that talks about the increasing uh, frequency in which the court has to deal with, uh, for instance, conflicts of law and right. and between the U.S. law and the laws of other countries. And, you know, we are dealing with, in this case with a situation where, you know, there's clearly a conflict of law between um, European law and U.S. law on these issues. Um, so, yeah, we do think about that, but, you know, this is a case in, in some ways that we think um, is going to um, sort of uh, resonate on a number of different levels, or we hope will resonate on, yeah. on a number of different levels with justices. I mean, it is a case about, um, you know, uh, extraterritorial application and conflict of laws. So mm-hmm. for some justices, that's going to be something that is important to them. Um, obviously, there are other justices for whom privacy is an incredibly important issue. And there are other justices, for instance, who believe that the words of a statute ought to mean what they say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we think we're in really good shape. Um, if you just apply the words of this statute, um, you know, 
by virtue of the text and not try to read anything into it. So, you know, those are some of the things that we've been thinking about as okay. we get closer to the argument. So you think you're walking into a room where you have a, f- a few different avenues to get justices on your side, but you're going to get the pushback from the DOJ. What are you expecting them to say? And what do you make of those arguments? Uh, well, you know, the, the DOJ is always a formidable opponent. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of like when you're the Philadelphia Eagles and you're walking into a Super Bowl against Tom Brady. Gosh. Um, Topical. We feel, we feel, we feel like, uh, even though, uh, you know, sometimes you're always the underdog when you're dealing with the government, we feel good about our, our situation and we think we'll ultimately come out on top. But seriously, I think what the, what the government is going to say is that, you know, um, if you strike down this law, it's going to have profound implications for law enforcement in the United States. Um, and, and so that's, that's in some ways their main point. And then from a sorely sort of pure legal point, what they'll say is that um, this is really not the fact that we're, we're accessing information outside the United States is not an extraterritorial application of this law. The thing that's important is that it's actually disclosed to the government in the United States, um, and therefore this is not an extraterritorial application. So just to clarify, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, and, and our, our, on our response, um, you know, on the, on the uh, two points is, first of all, um, this law is really about where the information is stored and things actually you know, we wouldn't be, we, if when the government comes to us with a warrant and requires us to, you know, access, copy, um, and move information to the United States, that very much is an extraterritorial act. So this is an extraterritorial application of the statute. Um, and, you know, you know, one thing that's super important is that we've always agreed that there are situations in which law enforcement needs to access this information, or, and it's got to be up to Congress um, to decide uh, when that should be, and Congress hasn't made that decision in this case. And, and you know, we ought not to have prosecutors make that decision. We ought not to have courts make that decision. Um, it's really up to Congress to decide when it's appropriate for the U.S. government to be able to get information uh, of non-U.S. citizens stored outside the U.S. Those are all good points, David. I did just want to clarify one thing. Are you actually Microsoft's head of litigation, or did the starting head of litigation blow out his knee, and now you're here talking to us <laughs> <laughs> to see the Eagles metaphor through to its logical No, that's, 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 I like that. I'm, I like I'm, that. I'm, I'm teasing, of course, uh, Amber. You... Yeah. Well, let's, let's just say, let's just say I'm, the, I'm, I'm actually, hopefully, the Super Bowl winning yeah, well, uh, we'll see. head of litigation of Microsoft. So you, um, in your answer a few moments ago, brought up how Congress may need to be the one that really digs into the Stored Communications Act. Um, if Microsoft prevails in this case, do you think that there will still be a need for Congress to pass a new law or update the Stored Communications Act? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've said from the very beginning, win or lose, that Congress needs to update the statute in a way that takes into consideration, uh, you know, the needs of law enforcement, but also the need that there be you know, greater international cooperation and some sort of a international protocol uh, for getting this type of information. So, I think that basically you know, everyone uh, has said that, haven't they, David? I mean, even even I, I think that's I think that's really true. And I mean, I think even the even the uh, even the Justice Department uh, has said that. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, um, as recently as yesterday, I saw um, yes. there was 
legislation that was proposed um, that was that was uh, that's intended to address these issues. So, uh, you know, I think everybody agrees that regardless of what happens with this case, um, Congress needs to consider this issue, and that's what we've said from the very beginning, from the time we brought this case in in 2013. Well, it sounds like no matter what happens, we will probably want to talk to you again, David, later on when Congress decides to, to look at this issue a little harder. I would look forward to that. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, David. Absolutely my pleasure. Take care. For our offbeat segment this week, guys, I want to talk about Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow, that was a lot of America. Right America purportedly yeah. runs on it. <laughs> so last week we spent a lot of time thinking about like what is a partner, and I yeah. want you guys to contemplate what is steak. Hmm. Uh, you don't have to answer. Well, okay. steak, Let's talk it out. Steak has a lot of meanings, but you so know. Dunkin' Donuts was sued in New York federal court back this summer in June. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a proposed class action for allegedly misleading consumers by advertising these Angus steak sandwiches mm-hmm. that the uh, purported class says are instead made of inferior beef patties. Inferior, <laughs> inferior beef patties would be a good band name. Yeah, yeah it really would. Nice. Yeah. So last week, the consumers fought Dunkin' Donuts' bid to, to nix the whole suit. They disputed the chain's argument that they should have just consulted the ingredients list. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we these these things bubble up from time to time. We've we talked about like the, the subway footlong yep. thing. We've written stories in the past about, you know, Coffee's not being filled up all the way and yeah. things like that. I mean, what 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 are they saying here? So they're basically saying that the customers paid more, and they're saying fifty or sixty cents more per sandwich for this Angus quote steaks and egg Angus. sandwich, Angus. and another Angus based product. Angus doesn't mean um, anything. Well, I mean, the the argument goes that. 50 cents sounds like we we can just joke around about it, but yeah. when you add up all the people that paid more for what they thought was a premium product, the chain is really reaping some benefits by just serving this sure. beef product and calling it steak. And they point to a lot of advertisements that okay. specifically said steak and made a big deal out of this. I'm going to sue Slim Jim for not including as much uh, Jim. Well, you... <laughs> That's good. Thanks. We Well, you mentioned the, the, about the advertisements and stuff. Bill, I mean, you were telling us at the meeting yesterday, you're like a veteran of the meat advertising wars. Yeah, I once right? briefly worked in a grocery store and there was this foul-mouthed like, like meat manager there and he was like, Angus doesn't mean anything anymore. They ruined the whole name. <laughs> so apparently Angus used to like have some like sort of actual meeting. cachet Kinda back like in the Wagyu day. Kind of like Wagyu or something? But like, yeah, uh, yeah. yes. And like, but the over time because it's been used by every fast food restaurant in America for like burgers it doesn't really mean much anymore well, and just may- to be clear maybe, with this one maybe they'll call you as an expert witness <laughs> I would they like should. that if they get yeah. far enough down the, down sure. the line and I mean just to be clear th- with this one the complaint isn't about Angus it's actually about the word steak because mm-hmm. they're saying it's essentially a beef patty it's because when the, the argument oh, goes yeah, yeah. that when sure. consumers hear the word steak they think of like steak from a steakhouse like sliced meat they don't think of this process thing that has fillers in it and other other things to make a patty yeah did they mention the 1995 coming of age film angus because that that was a, that was a lost opportunity they that was did a, not mention that was that. that was a favorite of mine great, great soundtrack yeah very good um yeah. that was but, the, that was the shermanator was in that one i think yeah i that's that and the guy one of the fat kids from Mighty Ducks, whose name I don't remember. Sure. Uh, uh, nah, forget his name. It yeah. doesn't matter. Uh, well, <laughs> anyway, well, where, where, where are we at on this? So, so basically, um, 
where we are is I think it's funny some of the things that come up in these suits about consumers and food products because uh-huh. Dunkin' Donuts basically defended itself by saying um, they could just read the ingredients list of this product. <laughs> this is like, and they yeah. and it's available on the website. It's posted in stores. They could see it before they pay. So yeah. just read the ingredients, guys. That's sort of. A, I'm I'm not a, a consumer protection expert by any stretch, but that is sort of like a lot of these things come down to that, right? Where it's like, you know, how well, how how much of it is on you to seek out. We we have some good quotes about how the okay. consumers disagree, and that's what was going on <laughs> right, this, sure. this past uh, week. Any reasonable consumer would understand steak to mean an intact cut of meat. Okay. And then they also said, defendant's ingredient statement is available to an extremely conscientious consumer. See, that's what I'm saying. Who's determined always, to seek it out. But now, to be clear, many, many Dunkin' Donuts consumers are Boston sports fans. <laughs> many of whom wow, like are- is, I'm trying to see where this is going. Heat check. Often seem concussed. So, <laughs> uh, so Just, I- I don't know if they would read the ingredients or can read or. <laughs> well, they say that that's not a reasonable standard for consumers. There you go. Yeah. Love Duncan. What so, are you talking about? We'll have to see how this one turns put, out. Put a, okay. Put, put a stake in me. I'm done. And so is the show, guys. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Bye. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, David Howard of Microsoft. Contributing reporters this week include Cara Salvatore, Michael McInerney, Andrew Strickler, Dunstan Priall, and Chris Crosby. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about the stories we talked about, please check out our website at law360.com podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Thanks and see you again next week.